Good morning. Our reading this morning follows on from last week's reading where Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples from John 13, verses 18 to 38. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfil this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Jesus took the bread, sorry, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Thanks, Colleen. (laughs) Well, last week um, I advertised the Song of Songs series will be coming up and um, that we will start that in two Sundays, just so you know, two Sundays' time. And uh, today, we can, so we're going to continue the John series, the, the, the ongoing 
Um, John's series has just been going for a few years, um, and so we're up to John 13. And um, yeah, we've advertised, well, we've put on the booklet the service title, um, Jesus Dodgy Friends. It's really a sermon about Christian love, but we're learning about Christian love from Jesus Dodgy Friends. One of the basic truths of being a Christian, being a Christian disciple, is uh, that we should love one another. Uh, even non-Christian people know this to be true. You might have experienced in your life a time when you've been critical or judgmental of somebody else and your friend who's not a Christian has said, that's not very Christian, by which they mean, uh, you know, aren't Christians supposed to love everyone? And of course that's partly true. That is true to a, an extent, but to nuance that sort of idea, um, it's also important that Christians stand up against injustice and sin, and that sometimes involves calling out individuals or institutions or governments for their wrongdoings. And so you can be, um, it, people can interpret that, that act of, of calling out and, 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 and pointing out injustice or sin as not being loving, but that's actually not what Christian love looks like. In fact, what we need is a really good understanding of what Christian love really means. And I want to say Christian love is tougher and more costly than you ever imagined, but it's also more fantastic and attractive than you ever imagined. In our passage from John 13, um, it continues the extended scene in the Gospel of the Gospel of John, at the Last Supper. And we focus on two apostles. We focus on Judas, and Judas who substitutes uh, Christian love for hate, and Peter who also struggled to demonstrate love when it counted, but eventually uh, found his way back. And from those two um, men who got it wrong, we can learn about the true nature of Christian love, as we see Jesus interact with them. Jesus teaches the apostles in this passage that we've had this very, very famous um, verse that we all should know. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus is talking specifically here about the love that a Christian person has for another Christian person has. He's actually focusing on the love within the Christian community. Now, it actually isn't completely new, this idea. Um, Jesus says it's a new command. It's not completely new. Leviticus 19 verse 18 says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. This idea of loving each other has been part of the Jewish community and the Jewish faith thousands of years before Jesus said this. But what is new is the kind of love Jesus is talking about. And what he's talking about is a mutual affection that Christians show each other on account of his love for them. That's what's different. It's the love that they have for each other 
which flows out of Jesus' love for them. And this is a completely new kind of love for the world. And Jesus has set the example for them and he says to follow in his steps. And this should be the church's distinguishing mark. As you watch the Olympics, you might see the Olympians um, having a tattoo of the Olympic rings and the, the year that they're in the Olympics. Um, that's a, their distinguishing mark that they'll always have on their arm, remembering what they did. But for Christians, um, our tattoo is on our heart and it's, it's, that's our distinguishing mark, our, our Christian love for each other. Well, let's look at our first lesson about Christian love from the story of Judas. You never thought you'd hear a sermon about learning about Christian love from Judas, Judas, would you? And here's the idea. True Christian love involves staying with Jesus, requires you to stay with Jesus. When we look at this story of Judas, we are thinking about someone who was from the core team of Jesus' apostles. He was a treasurer. I mean, you don't pick someone as treasurer unless you trust them unless you think they're up for the job. We have Ross McKenzie as our treasurer. You know, he's a salt-of-the-earth kind of guy. You put your faith in him. You know, not to compare Ross with Judas. Sorry about that, Ross. Um, uh, but, but, you know, that's what, who you have is your treasurer. Um, but while Judas had been carrying out his ministry with the apostles, managing the finances, responding to Jesus' requests, keeping track of their savings and their spending he'd started to think about his own needs and desires and he was thinking about putting them above the needs of others. He'd started to live a duplicitous life. He appeared on the surface to have it all together. No one really thought anything about Judas, but privately thinking darker thoughts. He'd been planning to give away Jesus' whereabouts to the Jewish authorities um, so he could make some extra money. This would not just be a betrayal of Jesus, but it would be a betrayal of his friends, the disciples. And the thing is, what we see from this passage is that Jesus knew what was going on in Judas's heart. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He knew that Judas's loyalty was broken. And despite this, instead of stopping Judas in his tracks, he just sticks with Judas even while Judas's heart is turning dark. He gives him every opportunity to resist his temptation, to confess his sin, to say sorry, and to not do what he's about to do. So Jesus tries to raise this issue while still keeping Judas's identity a secret. And he, Jesus quotes Psalm 41 verse 9, He who shared my bread has turned against me. Jesus is hinting that someone from amongst the group would betray him, someone who has had table fellowship with him, someone who has broken bread with him will turn on him. Now, Jesus had already taught the disciples to love their enemies, and sometimes your enemy is lying next to you having a meal because, you know, in the Last Supper, I think Beck showed us a few weeks ago, they sort of lie on the ground in a U-shape. It's not sitting around chairs like Leonardo da Vinci style. It's actually kind of more relaxed. You know, sometimes your enemy is just there. Sometimes your enemy could be sitting next to you in church. Jesus' heart was aching for his friend Judas. Judas had had a chance to change his mind. 
He could reverse his act of hate and demonstrate an act of sorrowful love by admitting his plan and not going through with it. The disciples have no idea that anyone could do what Judas was about to do. And it might have been a shock to the disciples, but it was not to Jesus. And he was starting to bring this up to give Judas an opportunity to confess. He was telling them so that he could show who he really was as Jesus. And who was he? Well, he certainly wasn't a helpless victim. Jesus is not standing there and, you know, not in control of this situation. He was the son of God and he, just as was foretold, he was the one sent by God to implement God's plans. He knew what was going on, but he was also a human being. And so his heart, Jesus' heart was breaking. He loved his friends. And so when he said, one of you will betray me, he was troubled. He was emotionally torn up. It affected him personally. We get so used to the, um, the Easter story and the, the Thursday and Good Friday, Monday Thursday, Good Friday story, that we forget that Jesus is aching as all this happens. Anyway, the disciples didn't understand, looked at each other in confusion. And Judas, in his heart, is hanging by a thread. He was still present in the room, but his mind is already thinking about the next steps. What am I going to do next? All the evil steps of betrayal he would take. Now, Peter and John, who are like the inner sanctum of Jesus' friends and the kind of leaders of the apostles, wanted Jesus to explain a bit more. And we think probably they were sitting, lying close to Jesus and having a bit of a private conversation on the side. And Peter asked John to ask Jesus, you know, like, who's he talking about? So verse 26, Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son, the son of Simon Iscariot. Jesus isn't making a big deal about pointing it at Judas. He's not sticking the finger out and pointing like this. He's not, you know, exposing Judas with an accusatory finger. No, he just hands him some bread with some balsamic vinegar or whatever the vinegar was. Tried to make it fancy. Um, it would have been seen as an honourable act for the host of the party to do this, to hand out some food. No one would have thought very much. But Peter and John could see. Whoa. And then look at verse 27. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. John wants us to be clear that Satan was taking over Judas. This was a huge mo moment involving not just a wavering or disloyal apostle, but including the darkest forces of evil in the spiritual realm. We're not to think that Judas, this wasn't Judas's decision or Judas had no control over what he was doing, but we are to think that Satan was pushing him harder and guiding him. Um, Judas had dabbled with evil things and this is the consequence. And Jesus is no, knows what's going on, so he says, hurry up, just get it over and done with. There's no point stretching this out. Do it quickly. And the others at the meal don't know what's going on. They thought maybe Jesus is giving Judas some treasurer instructions, you know, on what to, um, to buy for the dessert or something. I don't know. And verse 30 tells us, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. And all the dark things happened in the Gospel of John when it's night. Judas left the building. He was gone. 
and it was over for Judas. And as Judas walked out the room, he's also walking away permanently from Jesus. There's a symbolism there. Once he was in the inner sanctum of Jesus' team, now he has removed himself from Jesus' presence. If you've ever resigned from a job, um, you'll know that sometimes in the last few weeks before it's your last day, hopefully this didn't happen with Flick, but um, you know, half the last few weeks before it's your last day, you can sometimes emotionally check out of your job because you're thinking about the next thing you're going to. And um, I've seen people do this with Jesus, emotionally check out with Jesus. They stop caring. Jesus means nothing to them anymore. And I think, well, I don't know, maybe Judas had emotionally checked out from Jesus. He had to do it to kind of deal with the, 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 the dissonance in his brain of, of betraying his friend. This is the only way he could do what he had to do. He could no longer demonstrate the key feature of a Christian disciple, which was to love his brothers and sisters with a servant, self-sacrificial heart. And this is true for us as well. If you are a Christian and you want to truly love, as a Christian should, in that kind of way that um, is on the screen, and follow the golden commandment to love one another as Jesus has loved you, then you need to stay with Jesus. What I mean is you need to stay close to Jesus. His love works in us and enables us to love others. C.S. Lewis puts it interestingly. He says, The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Just as the roof of a sun house does not attract the sun because it is bright, but becomes bright because the sun shines on it. In the same way, the Christian does not think that God will love us because we are loving people or loving others, but that God will make us into people who love because he loves us. We become bright because the sun shines on us. We become loving because the sun loves us. So don't hide from the sun. Don't emotionally check out from Jesus. It's the beginning of the end for your Christian faith if you do this. For Judas, it meant staying in the room and not leaving. But bigger than that, it meant staying with Jesus and the other apostles. And for us, staying with Jesus means staying with the church. It means staying connected to Christian people. When, when we um, say the peace, sometimes we say, we are the body of Christ, his spirit is with us. This is Jesus' presence with us now in the body of Christ and with his spirit. If we disconnect from the church, we are distancing ourselves from Jesus. You might feel an urge to walk out the door and never come back, but don't do it. You need it. Stay close to Jesus, then you can be that loving Christian. Well, true Christian love also requires you to be humble and repentant. See, Judas had every opportunity to repent, but he, he didn't. But we have another example of an apostle, Peter, whose love was faulty, only Peter's sin of betrayal wasn't permanent and he did demonstrate something really important. Jesus said to his friends, my children, I will be with you only a little longer 
You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. His time was running out, and he had his mission to fulfil, a mission to die. He's about to go and leave them. So Peter innocently asks Jesus to explain exactly where he's about to go, to which Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Jesus didn't give a straightforward answer to this very simple question because, well, the the answer was to reveal the glorification that was about to take place, the, the whole revelation of what Jesus was about to do on the cross and in the resurrection and the ascension. Peter doesn't accept Jesus' answer and says, why can't I follow? I will lay down my life for you, says Peter, quoting the parable of the good shepherd. But Peter is not the good shepherd. Jesus is. And it is Jesus who will lay down his life for Peter, not the other way around. Actually, Peter was further from able to follow Jesus than he realised. And Jesus says to him, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And this must have hit Peter in his guts because for the next five chapters of John where we see the, the continuation of what happens on, in the Last Supper, lots of disciples speak, but Peter says no words, nothing. It's almost like he's, gone, he's been silenced by what Jesus is saying here. And Jesus' prophetic claims were fulfilled. Peter did deny him three times, just as Jesus said he would. When Jesus was going on the cross... He was challenged about his associations with Jesus. And Peter said, you're talking about me? No, I have no idea who he is. When I was a kid um, in our church, we had Easter services where um, it was often dramatised and there were bits that were said each year. And I remember one of the bits that haunted me the most was this bit of Peter's life. And my friend's dad had the job of of making the rooster crow. And so we'd be in church and they'd often turn the lights out, down, off on Good Friday morning and the bit about the story of Peter betraying Jesus and then he would go, Now, you might think that sounds funny now, but at the time, my, the way my friend's dad did it, it was not funny. It was haunting to me. It was shrill. And I used to think to myself, would I ever do what the Apostle Peter did? Would I betray Jesus? Could I do that? And the answer is yes. My devotion to Jesus would never be perfect. But the story of Peter's faulty devotion is actually a story of hope because unlike Judas, while Peter did deny even knowing Jesus, and this was obviously a big deal for the early church because it's mentioned in every gospel, Unlike Judas, Peter never walked away. He stayed with his Christian brothers and sisters even after Jesus had died. And and after Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus famously spoke to Peter on the beach and challenged him about what had happened and then forgave him and reinstated him and they were reconciled. And so the story of Peter's faulty devotion um, and his forgiveness from Jesus... And his reinstatement shows us that true Christian love 
doesn't require us to be perfect. No, but it does require us to be humble and repentant. We will get it wrong. We will let each other down. We will let each other down because we are weak, um, because we lack good judgment sometimes, because we are sinners. But if we are humble and repentant like Peter, then we'll be okay. Jesus doesn't need you to be perfect, only he is perfect. He doesn't need you to lay down your life and be the Messiah. That's his job. And the flip side is true. If a Christian brother or sister wrongs you or lets you down, don't put them in the freezer. You know, don't keep them out of your tribe. Don't ignore them and hold a grudge towards them. Have the same posture of forgiveness that Jesus had towards Peter. Seek reconciliation. In your ministry, be gentle and forgiving. Sometimes being in ministry, in leadership, in the church, of any, any kind of leadership can make you really angry because God's people can be really annoying and just not loving towards you and towards each other. People say they're going to do something and then they don't do it. Oh, they give you a call last minute, I can't do what I said I was going to do. Or they criticise and they bag each other out. Perhaps you've experienced that. Well, to last a long haul, to love the way Jesus is saying to love is to be humble, to keep serving, to be slow to criticise your brothers and sisters. So what have we said so far? We've said, Jesus said, love one another just as I have loved you. This is how all people will know that you really are Christian disciples. And so true, true Christian love is what we are talking about, is love that comes from remaining close to Jesus, unlike Judas did, and love that is humble and repentant, like Jesus shows to Peter and like Peter shows back to Jesus. And lastly, what I want to say is that true Christian love is a response to Christ's love for us. And remember at the start I said that's the the true marker, that's the distinguishing difference. Finally, you know, we can't overlook this, and I want to show you what I'm talking about, about a kind of a Christian love that is a response to Christ's love for us by telling you a story. And it's it's a cool story because it's, um, it's a story of, about the Olympics, as a story about an Australian, as a story about a Melbourne person, as a story about an inner north person. Um, so this is a good story. Um, there's a good Olympic story um, which not enough Australians know. Um, and it shows you what happens when Christians respond to Christ's love for them towards other people, towards other Christians, and don't let each other down, and in fact put their, themselves on the line for each other. And th- this story goes back to the Mexican Olympics of 1968. And, it's, and this Olympics went down in history for lots of terrible reasons. Um, late 60s was a period of, if you remember, if you were alive then, I wasn't, but if you know from your history, um, it was a time of racial tensions Racial tensions in America, so you'd had Martin Luther King Jr. killed, assassinated, and Robert um, Kennedy assassinated, who was an ally of um, the civil rights movement. Um, and in Australia, we were experiencing our own racial tensions. 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, had only got the vote for the first time in 1965 and only counted in the census for the first time in 67. The forced removal of children was still um, a practice taking place um, and um, it was still the white Australia policy. The ends of that were still being implemented. So Australia's racism was still very much alive and present. And also, so this is kind of the culture we're in at the time, the late 60s. But also, um, what happened in Mexico was only 10 days before the Olympics started a peaceful university student protest, protest, uh, protest took place against Mexico's authoritarian president, Diaz Ordaz. And his government, um, uh, which was you know, oppressing, the, oppressing the people, doing horrible things with, through the workers, and, and so at this protest that took place, um, the government sent 5,000 soldiers and 200 tanks and surrounded the students. And the president gave the authority to open fire with machine guns. And hundreds of students were killed and, and, and thousands were arrested as well. So that's kind of a bit of a context. You know, before the Mexico Olympics, right? And then we now go to the 200 metre men's final. And the 200-metre men's final had just happened. And it was won by the African-American Tommy Smith. And the silver went to the Coburg man, the Australian, Peter Norman, who ran an incredible 20 seconds point 06, uh, which would made it would have made him a gold medal in many of the Olympics in the last 20 years. Um, and the bronze went to another African-American, John Carlos. And the two Americans told Peter Norman, the Australian, that they were going to make a political statement in the medal ceremony about rights for African Americans. And they were going to raise their clenched fists unto the sky and bow their heads while the Star Spangled Banner was played in the stadium. And so Peter Norman said to them, oh, he was like 23, I think, at the time, he said, what do you want me to do to help, guys? You know, typical Aussie. And so John Carlos um, said to Peter Norman, do you believe in human rights? And he said, yeah. And, he's, and, and then Tommy Smith said to him, aren't you in the Salvation Army? Do you believe in God? And Norman said, I believe strongly in God. So he was a, a fifth-generation salvo. And if you know the salvos, you know, that it's really like inbred in the family. You know, it's a big thing. He was in the Coburg church. And he'd been training at the Collingwood Harriets down the road here. Um, and then later at the Melbourne Athletics team in, the, in uh, what used to be Olympic Park. And his faith motivated him to care about justice. The salvos ethos was very much... Um, focused on the marginalised. This is how he was brought up. So, and he was a man who was outraged by the racial segregation that was going on in America. In America, he couldn't understand why people had to drink from different water, uh, fountains, you know, and go on different buses. And he hated the white Australia policy. And Norman said to Carlos and Smith, "I will stand with you." And he did. And this is. The famous photo, there he is. See, when we demonstrate true Christian love, it's not just a feeling, it's so much more. It leads to action. 
and sometimes costly action. Jesus didn't just love the disciples by saying, I love you, man. He loved us by being nailed to a Roman cross and dying a death that we should have died. And Peter Norman's whole life was shaped by this truth, this act of perfect saving love. And so it made complete sense for this young school teacher from Coburg to do what he was about to do. All three of the athletes wore an Olympic project for human rights badge and Norman had to borrow his from an American rower. Um, and this was a huge statement on its own. This was not an era of woke virtue signalling. This was highly controversial. And um, the two Americans wanted to wear these black gloves, but they only arrived with one pair of gloves. And so Peter Norman suggested to them, why don't you split them between you? You know, one can wear the left glove, the other can wear the right glove, and that's what they're doing. And when the time came to stand on the podium, they went through with their plan, and this image became one of the most iconic images of all of Olympic history. But as a result, the Americans were suspended for the US team by the International Olympic Committee and banned from the Olympic Village and from the Games for life. The head of the IOC, Avery Brundage, who was a known anti-Semite, had allowed the Nazis to make their salute in the 36 Berlin Games, but was angered by this. And he pressured the Olympic, American Olympic Committee to discipline their athletes. Sadly, Peter Norman's actions also resulted in his being hounded by the Australian media and reprimanded by his country's Olympic authorities. The Australian Olympic team didn't know what to think of this. And as a result, he didn't get sent to the 72 games despite having qualified. And even in the 2000 Sydney Olympics, he, Peter Norman still wasn't invited to be part of the ceremonies, even though he was sort of had gone down in history for the silver medal. But the American team did invite him to join with them. And it was only until 2012 that the Labor, Federal Labor MP Andrew Lee um, organised an official apology to Peter Norman for his terrible treatment. John Carlos said about Norman, at least me and Tommy had each other when we came home, but when Peter came home, he had to deal with a nation by himself. He never wavered, never denied that he was up there with us for a purpose, and he never said, I'm sorry for his involvement. That's indicative of the man he was. And in 2006, Peter Norman died of a heart attack. And so Carlos and Smith flew to Melbourne to give eulogies at the funeral, and they carried him out in honour of their Christian brother. And reflecting on the whole affair, John Carlos later said, I expected to see fear in Norman's eyes, but instead we saw love. They knew that Peter was Jesus' disciples because he showed them true Christian love. Well, let's pray and ask God to give that to us. Look, I thank you for this inspiring story, story of Peter Norman. And we pray that um, his actions um, encourage others and inspire others, but it also show us 
how the choices we make in loving each other really make a huge difference. And pray that in our church we can be known by our love for each other and that we can remain with you, not check out from you, not leave the building, um, and that we can be humble and repentant towards each other so that we can last the long haul. Amen.